Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, but and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent. Said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now... There's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with Brother Colton uh, for a few moments this afternoon. We're talking about math. Uh, that's not a that's a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Maud. That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math, my brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you, found, you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, and I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I, I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, he proves every day his love for you. His mercy is new every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up, teenagers... Did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead, a reminder of his love for us. And we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight, but I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a few moments uh, just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word, uh, just to relish in what God's done. Uh, just to praise him, just to worship him tonight. Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we get a few glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. 
Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God, worthy is the Lamb. But Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And Would it take more money? Would it take better health? Would it take greater happiness in your life? More comfort? A better job? A bigger house? A newer car? What would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was. I think that's right, maybe 94. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. <laughs> but my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake. It was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think. Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think. Chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, you know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake <laughs> and as a birthday gift. And that day... As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his, it was his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. 
But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does, everything God does, he does for a specific purpose. He, he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always, if we look in the, the account of creation in Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He, he, he loves us. He, he does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes, of you know, God searched through heaven looking for... God didn't search through heaven. I, I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back. Oh, no, man, what am I going to do now? Man, sin. Where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for because he loves man. God never throws anybody away. For a little over a year now, God's put a burden on my heart. I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon, but God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away we live in a culture today Christian culture where we give the gospel out and we try to reach people and so many churches if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel. And he watched as the potter broke the vessel. But he didn't throw the clay away. He simply started again. Christian, we need to understand the love of God, that God doesn't throw you away. He doesn't throw me away. He desires to use us and to mold us and to make us. Now, does that mean that we're, I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do? There are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks in the potter's house we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily we look at it as wow something good happened today God loves me 
Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maude fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, I'm beautiful. Exactly. No, I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, he still loves me. When I, when I disobey him, he still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but he answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight, and I, I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening, but I want to share four thoughts, four proofs of God's love, and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one, he quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago, is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you are born again, child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he quickens you. When I was in grade 7, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and in my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring, and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 
12-year-old brain, I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball, kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke, and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully... Colton, you having, you having trouble yet? I know it's... He's, a, he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying, and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still, uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. She might have even said a, a real foul word like, shut up. I don't know what she said, but she's, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof. And he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder. He jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am. Blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit. And they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick. There, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down, the nurses holding me down, and that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Maud. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because he quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter E there, he quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of his mercy and his love towards us. In verse 4, we were dead in sins. In verse 5, we were hell bound. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said, grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, so does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. 
He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said, our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top Ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed. He, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer, who I was thinking of, who killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I, I'm, I want to make available to him salvation. Had he trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we go, oh, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And he doesn't love you because he wants to get something from you. He doesn't love you because he, he's, he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And his love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? <laughs> well, as a boy, I, I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. 
I think sauerkraut's awesome, Brother Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us with an everlasting love. For Sean 4, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God's proven his love through the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two. The number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight. He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin, all of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on Him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it, all of sin. It was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on, when he came off of that cross, was buried with him, was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom that I preached back in 90, it was 98. My wife and I have been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my, my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket. To be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb. Your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary. He took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus. Taking my sin to the tomb. Because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He, 
he rose again, meaning that sin was put ever behind him. In the book of Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you those that know the English language better than I do will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights after they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground, when he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his love. He, he quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with him. I was buried with him. I was risen with him. He brought within the redemption our new creation. I'm not just saved from hell. And I praise God I'm saved from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell. I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother Mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, 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 here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I have, I'm saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done as we see his love. I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He, he's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, Hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very 
very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I, I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you'd almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was, maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this. And uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Carrie was punching me. But Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world, you know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. Eternity is my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number 3 tonight, we see here that he shows grace. He shows kindness. Now, if... I'll let Brother Eric be God tonight. His wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face. I mean, just pop! Brother Eric's a mild-mannered, genteel gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point, like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, but Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Popeye's chicken. <laughs> That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase... I've stood all I could stand, and I can't stand no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, there would come a point. The point would have come a long time ago where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. Amen. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. How wonderful here. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see his love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with him and through all eternity grace, kindness. God shows his love every day. Every day. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening. Mr. Edwards, who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he, he wrote down his messages. He was very poor of seeing. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it's said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face. Probably, probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem. And she would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It's said in a monotone voice, Brother Mon. It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation, during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell. At any moment, could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you, that's where I was. But that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety. Speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I, I've, I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you, there's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a, a dummy. But I, I just knew I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> The Lord knows. If he wants me here, then I'm supposed to be here. I remember going in a building, and as I went to go in the building, the police in the police station at the bottom of the building looked at me and said, don't go in here. If you go in that elevator and you do not come back, Chicago police, they told me, we will not come look for you. 
We don't care what happens to you after you go in that door. We're not coming up there. Just so you know, you're on your own. That's not good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So, but pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That, that's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory, God's blessing. We see his kindness. We see his grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me, let me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation, I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four, lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Number four tonight is we see the next proof of God's love for us. He created you. Not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I, I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows. And I several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad. 
and I didn't use fiberglass. I used God's fiberglass. How many of you know what God's fiberglass is? Bamboo. And I, I did a tri-lamb bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form. And uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded. And I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think, on the top bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, Two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we were out soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something. I called my dad Paul. And as I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, I... Is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows. Because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never, I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up, and general area, probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live. And he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, as Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside. And just a little bit of everything, you go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, they, there in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel, actually, come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there, and there was an old knife, an old hunting knife, and this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store in this little town near where he knew that I was from that area, and he thought, I want to do something nice to pay him back. He paid a few bucks, maybe 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks, I don't remember, he bought this old knife. It was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart. The knife was pitted and old. And he sent it to me as a gift, and I, I was overwhelmed. That's really neat. That's really awesome, really cool old knife. And thanks to the wonders of the Internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. 
I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that. And I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation, the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value, as far as the world's concerned for that knife, is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me. His signature. He made me. He made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a, a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created, Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So, listen to this statement. They await your doing. God created you to walk in those works. 
Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way, when I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly God spared them. They didn't. Several times they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this, preaching the word of God as an evangelist in the southern U.S. Every time he opens the Bible and lays on the pulpit, it's a reminder. He used to be laying down lines of cocaine. He used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle. He used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife. Praise the Lord. God created him and ordained him to walk in good works. It's a reminder, Christian. I give that example because it's easy for you to see and, and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I, I was never a drunkard. I, I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving him praise for what he's done for us. For dying on the cross. For giving our sin. Placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two, by surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for his purpose. 
to the growth process. First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse five. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but virtue, on knowledge, on temperance, on patience, on godliness, on brotherly kindness, on love. We need to surrender to that process. Number three, how do we walk in good works? I'm going to close with this thought tonight. By serving. By serving in all areas of good works. What is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do. Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your your child to do or, or Brother Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, And I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. He'll pull out a notebook. Okay. I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now, I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. He's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls, just like little Samuel, the day's gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Lord? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight, I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And, Lord, a lot of them don't get done. Because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love.
that you've proven over and over and over again in scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose. May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember Colton. Let's sing together. 301. Only trust him. Number 301. you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ but may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful that purpose, that fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Esther, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. By the way, one more praise report I want to share. Uh, praise the Lord for the progress that's been made this week uh, on our electrical uh, and our building. And uh, we have come a long way. I encourage you, uh, before you leave this evening, uh, take a quick walk through upstairs. I don't grab any wires, you see. Uh, I can't guarantee you won't die. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, we'll take a quick, quick walk through and uh, take a look and see what's been done this week. And uh, we've got most of the wiring done upstairs. There's just a few little things to button up 
uh, tomorrow. Most things are run. There's a few things down here on this level, and uh, be praying. We're going to be reaching out. Colton's going to call early Tuesday morning uh, to ask for a rough-in inspection. And uh, would you pray specifically? Uh, I believe we ought to pray specific prayers. Amen. Uh, prayers asking, and if we want to receive, we need to pray for what we want to receive. Uh, pray specifically this week, if you will, uh, that the city will get an inspector out very quickly and pray that we have uh, the favor with the city. I know that we've got, uh, we've done everything. Every time there's a question about what to do, as I've talked to the guys, the statement I've made so many times, whatever we need to do to go above board so the inspector looks and goes, no, this is even better than it needs to be. And uh, But be praying that goes very smoothly. And uh, I'm praying that if we're able to do that, and God can do that if he wants to, uh, I believe we'll be able to have our bathrooms ready for the conference. And that would be a huge, huge, huge help uh, if we can do that. So if you'd pray for that, I would greatly appreciate it. John chapter 4. And bit of a lengthy passage of scripture, but I want you to follow along with me. I want to read it tonight. I know that most of you know the passage. Uh, I, I want to start out by saying before we read it, probably my favorite soul winning experience in the Gospels is the passage we're going to read tonight. I love the interaction of Jesus with the woman at the well. I love the fact that we see in her a picture of all of us that there's no one that cannot be saved. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And what I love even more about the fact of this, the conversion of this woman from Samaria was her reaction after the gospel. And I believe in her reaction, we see what our reaction ought to be. And I want you to look with me here as we continue our series on great soul winners of the Bible, talking about the woman of Samaria. And talking about her personally testifying as she told people about Jesus. Follow along with me as I read here. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And notice verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now let me stop here just a moment and make this statement. The average Jew in that day did not go through Samaria. It was the shortest way, but if you would ask Andrew or Peter or James or John or uh, any of the disciples, uh, Judas, which way should we go? <laughs> Anywhere but Samaria, Lord. Don't go there. Let's go the long way, the way we always go. We avoid Samaria. And yet the Bible says Jesus said he must needs go through Samaria. I'm sure glad he went there. In verse 5, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You're going to read about that here next week in your Bible reading schedule if you're following along. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were going away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, 
And who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank therefore himself and his children and his cattle? By the way, he was greater. He didn't say it, but he was. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Can you imagine the pause that must have happened that moment for her? Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, Thou hast no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The Lord confronted her with her condition of sin. By the way, every one of us before we came to Christ and received him had to understand what we were before him sinners. Nothing good we offered him. The Bible goes on, the woman said in verse 19, And to him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, that's what I call my wife, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. She know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh. And now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah is cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. I want you to pause for a moment and think what that statement meant for her. She was looking for Messiah. She, a Samaritan woman, a woman who was living in sin, still understood that she needed a Messiah. And here Jesus is before her and he says, I am the Messiah. Verse 27, and upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no man said, what speakest thou, or why talkest thou with her? And the woman then left her water pot and went her way in the city and saith unto the men, Come and see a man, which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him. Would you skip down to verse 39? And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard it our, him ourselves, and know that this indeed is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you tonight for the gospel. I thank you that it works. I thank you that it is the answer for man's sin problem. 
I thank you for the salvation of this woman, this woman who was thirsty spiritually, this woman who had tried everything in this world, no doubt, to try to satisfy that thirst and was living an empty life, and yet she found you and believed on you. Lord, I thank you for the day when I called upon you as my Savior. I thank you for the day when I came to the realization that I was lost and undone in sin, and I had no hope save for the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. Lord, I thank you for that day that I called upon you, believed, placed my faith in you as my Savior. Lord, I thank you for the salvation of this woman. But Lord, I also thank you for her testimony. Lord, her testimony was powerful. Her testimony was effective. And Lord, tonight as we examine it, as we think about the testimony of this woman, God, may we realize that we need to have a testimony. Bless us, Lord. Would you help me tonight? Give me your power. Lord, I pray you'd minister to the needs of those gathered here, the needs of those listening this evening. May your will be done. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We started about a month and a half ago, maybe a little more. It's been a few unusual weeks for us with different things going on. But looking at some soul winners, great soul winners in the Bible. And we look tonight at the fourth one in our series, The Woman of Samaria. It's important to remember some things as we continue with this thought on Sunday nights. Most people, studies have shown, only remember about one-sixth of what they hear. And about 25% or one-fourth of what they read. In this study, we see tremendous power in personal testimony. Can I tell you there's tremendous power in the preaching of the Word of God? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands tonight, but I know several of you, uh, you heard the gospel and believed because of the preaching of the Word of God. The Bible said it is please God for the preaching, the foolishness of preaching, uh, to save those. And praise God for that. But I believe there is a special power in a personal testimony, an amazing power telling of our own experience with Jesus Christ. By the way, God says that that is uh, something we have, the power, we have the Word of God and we have, this, we have our testimony. Two most powerful things you possess on this earth. And we see here this woman at the well, as you may know her, or the woman of Samaria. We see that she came to believe the Lord was the Messiah. She put her faith in Christ and immediately, she went to tell other people. Can I tell you, she didn't preach. <laughs> she wasn't a Joyce Myers disobeying the word of God. I'm about being a woman preacher. Uh, she didn't stand in the street corner. and She, she just went and said, hey, you got to come see this guy. Hey, you got you to hear about this. You got you to gotta, you gotta see it. You got to be a part of it. You got to know about it. There are four good reasons, I believe, why every believer... Notice I didn't say every, every pastor or every missionary. Why every believer, every Christian ought to engage in personal testimony. The Lord Jesus Christ encouraged it. Mark chapter 5 verse 19 and Acts chapter 1 verse 8 are very plain. Go ye therefore. 
The Bible's plain that you shall be witnesses unto me. God has a plan, a personal plan for each of us to be a testimony and a witness. Not only that, the apostles practiced it. If we look at the early church, and we look in the book of Acts, as we have now for 25 or 27 weeks now, I believe, on our Wednesday night Bible study, we find that the pattern has been, since the early church, personal testimony. Remember the man who uh, went to Peter and John and said, Hey, uh, give me something. Peter said, Hey, silver and gold have we none. But what I have give I thee. He shared with him about Christ. He gave his testimony about Christ. We see their personal testimony. The Holy Spirit, by the way, uses it. When we read the word in the book of Acts, and I'm going to turn there quickly uh, just to read a, a quick passage for you. You need not turn there, but Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, it says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That doesn't mean they were standing up on a street corner, although that, that's a way we can preach and proclaim. It means they were telling everywhere they went, Hey, did I tell you about this? Did I tell you about Christ? They told others what the Lord had done for them. And every Christian... Every Christian can engage in it. I don't have to have a Ph.D. Most people don't know this about me, but I have two Ph.D.s. How many of you knew that? Did anybody know that? That's what I thought. I know you're shocked that a hillbilly from West Virginia has two Ph.D.s. By the way, they're both earned Ph.D.s. I earned them when I paid for them. They're in my garage right now. Uh, post hole diggers. Uh, I've got two post hole diggers. You, thought I was talking about a degree. I don't have any degrees. But I, I, you don't have to have a PhD, a post-hole digger, or a doctorate degree to know how to be able to tell someone about Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a graduate of a Bible college. Matter of fact, you don't have to be a graduate of high school. You don't have to be a graduate of junior high school. You don't have to be a graduate of elementary school, praise God for Brother Jim, uh, to be able to tell somebody your testimony. I love, I love the story Brother Maud shared with me about his granddaughter. And uh, she got saved at Camp Joy. And, uh, man, she was excited about it, excited about the gospel. And uh, she was telling her friends. How old is she, seven? Seven years old. Shared the gospel with her friends. By the way, anybody, anybody can tell somebody about Jesus Christ. With her brother, too. Her brother got saved, and then a friend got saved. Exactly. Man, that's the way it ought to be. But Christian, we want to say, oh, I, I, I could, I, you know, I'm not good at talking. This woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, she went and used her personal testimony about meeting Jesus Christ, and God used it. I want you to see a few things about it here. And I, like I said, I, and I may someday, I, I probably will teach a, a series on this woman. I, I love this passage. It uh, just rings with me, this amazing meeting with Jesus. The number one tonight is we just think about her for a few moments this evening and her testifying. We see the basis, the basis of her personal testifying. Something must happen. Something has to happen before you give a personal testimony. I must have knowledge of the Lord. By the way, when she went and said, come see a man who told me all things whatsoever ever done, then she said, this is the Christ. She believed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
She had the basis of belief. She personally believed. By the way, I believe that God has used many unsaved folks to share the gospel. Uh, the disciples wanted to shut some guy up, and Jesus said, no, leave him alone. <laughs> Let him talk. But for us to have a true testimony, we have to have experience with Christ. If I have an accident tomorrow, a car hits me on the way to the office, and I call Caleb up. I say, Caleb, i got to go to court in a few weeks. I got hit with somebody. I need you to come testify that that guy was in the wrong and he hit me. Caleb's in a tractor. He's working on the farm somewhere. He, he says, Pastor, what are you talking about? I, I, I didn't see the accident. I, I wasn't with you. I mean, for me to ask him to testify for me would be criminal. It wouldn't make any sense because he would have no understanding of testimony. Christian, before we can have a testimony, we have to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to know that we are a believer. This woman believed. The woman understood who Jesus was. Jesus revealed himself. I can't imagine when Jesus said to her, that's who I am. The light bulb went off. And she said, "That's you're the one I've been waiting for my whole life. You're the Messiah. Her salvation was the moment she believed. And by the way, for you, Christian, the moment you believed is when you were saved. Our belief, if you believe. Praise God for that. But this, this woman here believed. We see in verse 19, look back in our text. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, uh, i got the wrong passage here. Let me get back to where I'm supposed to be. Uh, turn back to uh, John chapter 4 there with me. And let's look at verse number 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. So she went, first of all, she said, You're a prophet. Verse 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that when Messiah is cometh, which is called Christ, when he is come, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Then we see in verse 29, Come see a man, she said, which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? First she knew him as prophet. Then she knew him as Messiah, as the Christ. No one is, call, is qualified Christian, get this. No one is qualified to testify for the Lord until we know Him. Until we know Him. Number two, we see the basis of personal testifying. Number two, we see the constraint of personal testifying. Why should we testify? Why should we testify? Let me go back to my story of my accident that's going to happen tomorrow. If... Caleb just happens to be by the church tomorrow morning. He's probably the one that's going to hit me. And he actually witnesses the accident. He saw what happened. He's the only witness other than me. He would be compelled to be a witness before the crown. If asked to testify, he would be compelled to do so. Christian, we are compelled, we are constrained to be a witness for Christ. 
we ought to want to share with others. Verse 26 through 28, we see uh, she had understood something, understood something that she wanted other people to know. The Bible says she left her water pots. Now, I know what it is to carry water. I grew up, we had well water. How many of you had well water growing up? Anybody had well water? How many of you had well water that tasted good? We didn't. Our well water didn't taste good. And so we didn't drink. It was safe to drink, but it wasn't good to drink. So we didn't drink a lot of our well water. We had a cistern there on the farm behind my grandparents' house. And for all the water we drank and made tea and coffee with, you know, the three important things in life, uh, water, coffee, and tea, uh, all of that water came out of the cistern. Now, for those of you that don't know what a cistern is, our cistern was nothing more than a concreted hole in the ground. And we had a really high-tech by the gem filtration system. Uh, the water would run off the roof of the house, my grandparents' house. The, wa the same water would run down the gutter of my grandparents' house. It would run down the gutter pipe, and there would be an old tube sock tied around the end of the gutter. That was the filter. Uh, and then that water would run down in the ground. We drank rainwater filtered by a tube sock. Uh, that's probably why I never get sick. I, I, I'm immune to everything. But I would have to go over as a boy. Dad would say, hey, Janice, let's make a pot of coffee. And I would hear the words that I dreaded to hear. We're out of water. And the next word would start with a B. Brian, go draw some water. And I'd go get our galvanized bucket, and I'd walk across to my grandparents' house, out behind the house. I'd open up the lid of the cistern. By the way, I was terrified of the cistern because we had hairy wolf spiders that lived in there, and I used to be terrified of spiders. More than one time, I've opened the lid, and a spider jumped out on my face. One time, I smacked it. I busted my nose, splattered the spider. It was a traumatizing event. But I'd go and open the lid, and I'd take the bucket and the rope and drop it down and pull the water up and pour it in the bucket and hang the bucket back in, close the doors, and I'd carry the bucket back to the house. This woman didn't have a galvanized bucket. She had water pots made of clay. They were heavy and they were costly. They were the device that she had to have. She didn't have running water. We had running water in the house, and then we had running water from the cistern. If I ran with the bucket, it was also running water. But she had to go and get water in those clay water pots and carry it back. And she had to have water for everything. That's what her water was. And the Bible says she left them. Why? Because she thought, I've got to tell somebody. I've got to tell everybody who Jesus is. It's my responsibility. Christian, can I tell you tonight, our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ is to tell people about him. You know, we, when we think of this woman at the well and the impact she had, it's amazing. I love the verse in Acts when the disciples made the statement, for we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. Christian, we have to tell what we know. We have to tell the good news. 
when we think of those around us who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to feel constrained to tell them of the love and grace of God. We have the answer. Number three, I want you to notice the sphere of personal testifying here. Her sphere of personal testifying, it's indicated in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, and I believe this is very important. I want you to notice this. And went her way into the city and saith to the men. Now let's think for just a moment about this lady's testimony beforehand. Jesus said she'd had five husbands already. And the man she had now wasn't her husband. Most likely she was living with some other woman's husband. Now I think we can extrapolate from that. She didn't have a very good testimony in town. I have a feeling that when she walked down the street, the other women in the town pointed fingers, talked about her, wanted nothing to do with her. Maybe five or six women were very angry with her. Maybe who? Maybe she had their husbands. The Bible says she went to the men. She went somewhere where she knew she could tell somebody. She went to an area where she had an opportunity to tell somebody. I talked to Brother Polician this week. I can't talk to people in Uruguay today. I'm not going to have a chance to share the gospel with them, but I can in Edmonton. This is my sphere and area of influence. Our commission in Mark chapter 16 is to go into all the world. But we need to make the gospel known where we are. Make the gospel known where you are. There are many of us who may connect with several people, the same people. But every one of you tonight have many somebodies that you may be the only person that will ever have a chance to share the gospel with them. You may be the only person that you will ever have a chance to share Christ with them. This woman went to that area where she had an opportunity and said, hey, I'm going to tell whoever will listen. I'm going to go back to the city and I'm going to tell the people that will listen to me about Jesus Christ. It says she left her water pot. She went her way in the city and say it to the men. She started where she was. Christian, don't think that one day, somewhere else, you're going to be a great witness for Christ if you're not witnessing where you are. If you're not telling the people you're around now. We need to tell people where we are in our sphere of personal influence and testimony. By the way, the people you work with, people you see every day, the people at the gas station where you buy gas, the grocery store. I made a friend this week at the electrical store where we're buying materials, and most of you that have ever done a project, you know what happens. Every day there's one little thing you've got to get. And praise God, the Lord planned it out. That place is right on my route back and forth to the church. So it's been a blessing. I haven't go, had to go out of the way. But I've stopped in there, I think, six times this week. I went there yesterday. I had to go pick something up yesterday after the breakfast. And this week, most of the times I've gone there, the Lord has let the same man help me. 
And I realized that the second time I met with him, I thought, you know what? I think the Lord is having him. There's lots of people there, lots of people. I think the Lord's opening the door for me to talk with this guy. Got to give the gospel to him, share a gospel track with him. I walk in now, he, he makes a point to come around and come see me, calls me his friend, and I'm praying you'll see him soon. He'll be out. But Christian, every one of us have people that we interact with every week that we have an opportunity to witness to that no one else may ever get a chance to talk to. We need to realize that sphere of influence we have and take advantage of it. What's funny, and many of you have had this experience, I remember 20 years ago, a man had gotten involved in Amway. How many of you know what Amway is? How many of you wish you didn't know what Amway was, but you know? A man that I knew, he's in heaven now, good man. He got involved with Amway. And he begged my dad and I to go to one of the meetings. And because he was such a good friend, we went, not because we had any intention of being a part of it, just because he was our friend and we thought we were going to go. You know, when someone gets involved in something like that, it's amazing. They look for every person they connect with as a possible client. That always happens, always. To the point where, man, I don't want to see them because I know they're going to talk to me. Christian, more than someone for business sake, we ought to be looking at who we can reach with the gospel in our sphere of influence. Number four, we see the method here. The method of personal testifying. In other words, how do we do it? How do we share a personal testimony? One of the funniest stories I have, we just had our men's breakfast yesterday. And we've done this in the past. We'll do it again in the future. Over the years, I've had different men share their testimonies. And years ago, I think, I think you were there, Travis. I think the night I'm, what I'm going to talk about years ago. Do you remember when I had Nick Speckler give his testimony? I think you guys were there. I can't remember. But I had one of the guys who been coming to church faithfully give his testimony. There's a reason I had him give his testimony. Nick had never been saved. And uh, he was a religious guy, but he, was, he wasn't born again. And he got up and was start, tried to share his testimony. He rambled all over the place. He went everywhere. After a little while, he went and sat down after the breakfast. We're in there washing dishes. He came to me and he said, Pastor, I don't have a testimony, do I? I said, no, Nick. I said, I was trying to get you to face that today and realize and praise God, Nick got saved that day. But understand, how do we share our testimony? If we have a testimony, how do we do that? We see seven things in verse 28 and 29. And I, I believe these will help us about how we can share a personal testimony. Verse 28 says, the woman left her water pots. Letter A, we see an idea of priority. There's an idea of priority. It was the most important thing in her life. Christian, as long as we put on the back burner us telling people about Jesus Christ, it's never going to happen. It's not ever going to happen. We have to make it a priority. Her original concern was, I've got to go draw water. But once she met the Messiah, her priorities changed. 
It wasn't the most important thing is water. The most important thing was I got to go back to the city and tell people that I met Jesus, that I've met the Christ, I've met the Messiah. How wonderful it is that she understood who Jesus was and became a priority in her life to share her testimony. Our testimony has to be a matter of priority. John chapter 1 verse 41 says, He first, he first, Andrew, first, findeth his own brother Simon that saith unto him, We found Messiah, which being interpreted as the Christ. It was priority. Letter B, as we think about the method of how do we give a personal testimony, there is a note of earnestness. A note of earnestness. Her appeal to the people was not casual. In John chapter 9, the Bible tells us in verse number 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Her appeal was, hey, come see a man. I believe quite literally she was grabbing a hold of guys and saying, hey, you got to come with me. Hey, you need to go meet this guy. You have to come. You have to know him. It was earnest. It was important. It was vital. And Christian, our testimony needs to be brought out as earnest, as important. Let her see. There's the thought of direction. The Bible says the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city. It wasn't random. She had to find him. She had to have a plan. She had to know where she was going. I shared a story with someone yesterday about the only time that I've joked about uh, the flight or fight uh, response. I don't have much of a flight response. But several years ago, when I was 19 years old, I faced a, a very difficult situation on the streets of Chicago and had to deal with a couple of gang members, and it was a bad night. And when it was all said and done, and I was getting away from the situation, I just started running. I don't run, ever, for any reason. But I just started running. I didn't know where I was running. I just knew that I was glad to be able to get away from the situation. The situation was over. I, could, I just was going and going with no focus. Four or five or six or maybe eight blocks later, I stopped. And I had to take assessment, where am I? I had to go to the street corner and look at the street sign. Because I didn't know where I was. I just had taken off running. This woman didn't just take off. She had a purpose. She had a direction. She went back to the city. Christian, our testimony, we need to be thinking, who can I share my testimony with? I've got to have a plan. I've got to have a purpose she had a purpose. When we speak out to people for Christ, God will give you direction if you let Him. If you let the Lord lead you. How many of you have driven one of the newer cars that have the, uh, the lane departure system built in? Those are awesome. You can just go to sleep while you're driving. It's really cool. But wait, now if you do that, if you let go of the wheel very long, you get beep, 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 beep. It warns you. It gets mad at you. Put your hands back on the wheel. It doesn't like me to get very long naps. Uh, now, I don't own a vehicle even close to being new enough to have that, but I've rented a few vehicles in the last couple of years that have that system. And I'm amazed. Just let go of the wheel. and This is really cool, man. This car is driving for me. And then the car yells at me and wants me to start driving again. But 
If I let go, it will take over. Christian, if you let go, he will take over. He will give you direction. This woman went under the direction, I believe, of the Holy Spirit to go to the people she needed to give her testimony to. She obeyed God's command that she wouldn't even know about yet. And in the book of Acts, in chapter 8, and verse 29, it says, Then the Spirit, we talked about this Wednesday night, said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Letter D tonight, as we think about the method of personal testifying, there is an emphasis on speech. Notice what it says in verse 28. The woman then left her water pots and went her way in the city and saith to the men. She spoke to them. She told them. There are many who believe in lifestyle evangelism. Now, before you crucify me, let me say this. I also believe in lifestyle evangelism. But I believe that lifestyle evangelism is pretty shallow and useless if we're not speaking. I believe that our life ought to mirror the gospel. I believe that we ought to live our testimony before men, but that's not enough. We have to tell them. We have to tell them. We have to share our testimony. This woman went and spoke to them. She shared her truth, uh, the truth of Christ. You know, there are those that say, well, you know, I just, I can't speak. I can't tell anybody. But they speak about everything else. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6 says, Then said I, this is Jeremiah the prophet, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. God will do that, but you've got to open it. We have to open our mouth. We have to speak. Letter E. There's a clear indication here back in our text of John 4 of humility. The woman's thought here was not to draw attention to herself. She'd done a lot of that, no doubt, in her day. Her attention was to draw folks to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3 and verse 30, the Bible says, He must increase, I must decrease. When we share our testimony, Christian, with others, your salvation, it's not about lifting yourself up. It's about telling others how big your God is. When you got saved, it was not you, it was God. When Brother Jim Price was riding on that bus from Cal was it Calgary to Edmonton, when he got saved, it wasn't Jim Price, it was God that saved his soul. When Ahmad, as a 37-year-old Muslim, bowed his head and called on the Jesus Christ as the Savior, the man that he had believed before was just a prophet. It wasn't Ahmad Tadbir. It was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ. You understand, when I called on the Lord Jesus Christ as a young boy, it was nothing about me. It was about him. Our testimony is not about us. It's about Christ. 
this idea of humility, it's about him. In verse 29, come see a man which told me all things. Verse, ever I did is not this to Christ. And I love this. There was a challenge. A challenge. There was a challenge here as she said, hey, come and see. Come see for yourself. I love that. Verse 29, not only a challenge, but there was an interrogation. Come see a man which told me all things ever I did. Is not this Christ? I love this. Hey, she had the question. Do you think this is the Christ? She planted the seed. The seed of question. The seed of interrogation. Christian, all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can share with others. We can give our testimony. We can tell them so they can come face to face with the reality of Jesus Christ. By the way, our job is not to win them. Our job is to tell them. Our job is to warn the wicked of their way. How many of you remember, uh, maybe you even use it now, but it used to be a much bigger deal than it is today, uh, eBay. I've never used eBay before. I haven't used eBay in... I think Noah was just getting off the ark the last time I used eBay. But when I opened an eBay account years ago, my eBay name, in case, in case you want to find me on eBay, uh, I'm not sure how that would help you, is Soul Warner. <laughs> That's what we're to be, Soul Warners. We're to tell people, warn them, and tell them of Jesus Christ. Number five, and we'll close with this thought tonight. We, we talked about the method. Number five, the result of personal testifying. The result of personal testifying. We find it in verse 39. Would you read this verse out loud with me? And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. Notice the words there, many, many. We're not talking about one or two. The Bible says that many people believe. Why? Because she told. It's beautifully described here in that verse. Many of those people believe because she told. But hold on, that's not it. Not only were many that believed because she told, there was another harvest of people who weren't quite sure if they believed her or not. But her testimony made them curious enough to seek out the truth for themselves. And they said, we didn't believe because of you. We believe because we went and saw Jesus and, and we believed him. But can I tell you how they got to Jesus? Because a woman said, hey. Come see a man who's told me all things. Christian, we see a twofold reaping of harvest. Number one, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that if we are faithful to share our testimony, we will see a harvest. We will see folks that will believe. But I also believe that there are those that we try to share Christ with that we may never see personally them believe.
but we can plant the seed. That's why Brother Jim is focused on First Bible because without the Word of God, there's no seed. We can't even begin to plant the seed in countries and people groups where there's no Bible in their language. They have to have the seed. We have the seed. We have gospel tracts. We've got the Word of God in the English language. We can spread it. We can plant the seed. We can go by and water. But can I tell you, God gives the increase. And in both of those harvests, it was the Lord that gave the increase. It was not the woman. But it was a result. I've helped plow a field before. I've plowed a field. I've disc fields. Not nearly as many as Caleb has. Caleb had plowed more fields by the time he was five than I had my whole life. But I've plowed fields. I've disced fields. I've planted seed. I've done all of that work on a farm. But not one time did I make crops grow. Not once. As a little boy, I remember helping my grandpa plant a garden. I remember the first time he let me push the little one-wheel cedar when I was probably, I don't know, I was, I might have been six or seven years old. And I remember him taking the little brown paper bags of seed that he got down at the Yager's feed store. And he'd open them up and he had written on them what they were. and He'd adjust the little opening on the cedar so the right, the right amount would come out for that crop. And he'd pour the seed in and he'd let me push that little cedar. Had a little V in the ground and a drag chain and he'd drop the seed in as you push the wheel. It would run the little, the little plate. Some of you know what I'm talking about. As a little kid, I didn't push it straight. My grandpa would be down there with a, a bean pole and tell me, hey, you push the cedar where I am. Supposed to be a straight line. By the time I was done, we wandered all over the place. And my grandma would be there to make the joke where well, you can get more crops in a crooked line than you can a straight line. She was looking out for me. She loved me. But I remember the first time I did that. You know what I did the second morning, the, first, the morning after, the next day? I got up early in the morning. I don't like getting up early in the morning. I got up early in the morning. I walked out there in that garden. And I went, where in the world are the plants? I planted them yesterday. I went over to Grandpa. I said, Grandpa, where's the plants? He said, you got to wait. Next day, where's the plants? You got to wait. Takes a while. But you know, I couldn't make those plants grow. But God did. Christian, when we get our focus on what we can do and realize we can do our job and God will do His, we can expect results. Why? Because the results aren't ours. We don't work up results. We obey the Lord of the harvest. And the Lord of the harvest gives the increase. God gave a great increase here. Many people of Samaria believe. By the way, and I, I, I love this, and we I talked about the other night. Her testimony... Can I tell you what else the testimony of that woman at Samaria did? It built a foundation of the gospel that not much longer after, it wasn't a long, long period of time, a year, year and a half maybe, max, 
that Philip could leave the church in Jerusalem and he would go down to Samaria and he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ about the risen Lord. And there was a group of people already there in Sychar who could say, Amen, Brother Philip. You tell them we believe in Jesus Christ. We met the Messiah. And there was a great revival there. All because a woman who met Jesus Christ said, I got to tell people about it. I got to tell them. We see a great harvest of souls. Look at verse 35. We'll close with this thought. Verse 35. So let's skip back to verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore saith the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? And Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And then we find verse 35. Say not ye, there are four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look in the fields, for they are white already to harvest. When Jesus said the fields are white, it meant that the crop was almost rotten. It was almost too late to get it out of the field. Christian, as you look around you in our world today, would you realize the fields are white it's almost too late there's somebody you know that's almost too late to tell them about Jesus Christ you have a family member that it's almost too late we've got to share our testimony let's pray together Lord I thank you for